Okay, I'm talking to Bob Friedman, who is a founding member of the of AEO. Bob's had a very long interest in microenterprise. So what I'd like to do first is just sort of tell us how you became interested in microenterprise and then sort of what led you to the formation or thinking about starting AEO, getting involved with that. Sure. Um, well, my threshold interest was and what caused me to start uh, CFED was an interest in reducing unemployment. And I thought at least part of the problem was lack of good jobs uh, and that there must be room for some new ideas. And I looked at employment policy uh, in this country for the last 50 years. This was now 30 years ago. <laughs> um, and basically, one of the strategies we had never tried as a country was enabling low-income folks and unemployed folks to create jobs for themselves. And I thought, why not? Uh, and so that was really the threshold interest. It coincided really with, uh, well, and, and it was an idea which I don't really think is a new idea, right? This is the idea that this country was built on, that it's the kind of radical, but in another way, old-fashioned idea that given reasonable access to opportunity and resources, common Americans will craft their own futures, and with that, the futures of their families, communities, and indeed the country. Uh, but we've gotten away from thinking of that as an opportunity uh, and I thought let's test this and so uh, we began to hear that in Europe that with uh, the welfare state they are more developed and also showing signs of age <laughs> um, they uh, France and Britain had begun to open up the possibility that uh, unemployed people could collect benefits while trying to start a business, uh, create a job for themselves. We, they talked about it as self-employment. In the French case, uh, they allowed people to capitalize their benefits and take them in a lump sum. In the British case, they could just continue receiving the benefits. Uh, and so really kind of around... This is now the mid-80s. Uh, there were a couple new programs in this country, and they were women's freestanding, women-centered economic development, really enterprise development program. This was Kathy Keeley and Wedco in Minneapolis-St. Paul, which would later become Women Venture. It was Connie Evans at the Women's Self-Employment Project. Uh, it was a women's initiative for self-employment in San Francisco, and then there were three other, I think, California groups. Uh, but it, you know, I think it's important to know that the birth, the wellsprings of microenterprise in this country, really is, as I consider it, an offshoot of the women's movement, and, and women is the new entrance to the economy. Uh, so. There were those models. I remember us worrying in those days that, well, will we stay with just one or two programs? And how, how long could we talk about WEDCO <laughs> without people beginning to wonder? 
Um, I should have mentioned also the Lakota Fund, uh, which began around the same time. But then in the kind of 1986, I thought, well, let's prove it here. Uh, and we started the self-employment investment demonstration to test whether self-employment would be of interest uh, to uh, single moms on welfare. Um, and we convinced five states to waive the rules and provide some grants to start or expand programs uh, for self-employment. It was, you know, if, if this worked for welfare moms, uh, maybe it would stand as a proof that a whole variety of uh, low-income and unemployed people could create futures for themselves. And indeed, uh, that demonstration proved that given the opportunity, a small percentage but a significant number of welfare recipients would choose self-employment and could make a go of it uh, and would build assets um, while doing it. This was not an expected outcome. Um, and it was really the beginnings of the asset building field uh, in this country, which I I think really grew out of microenterprise, um, but but encompasses a broader range of strategies and in some ways matches the institutionalized debt mechanism of the loan fund with an individual equity mechanism of match savings. Bob, tell me, what, what led to the formation of AEO? If you could just give a, a brief overview of, the, of that start, that would be great. So kind of... Uh, in the kind of mid to late 80s, there were a handful of microenterprise programs, uh, and my attentions were really focused on the self-employment investment demonstration, which was enough to handle. Uh, kind of woke up in 1989 to realize that where there had been a handful of programs, there were now probably 100 microenterprise programs. We didn't call them microenterprise programs in those days. Uh, it was before we really knew about the developing country experience. Um, uh, but the, you know, the handful had grown to a hundred. No one could quite figure out how they were getting supported because uh, it was mostly local money. Uh, but it was clear that as much energy as was there uh, there were things that those lo very local programs couldn't do alone that they might be able to do together, So, uh, which certainly included policy advocacy. Again, we had bumped up with, with asset penalties uh, that had penalized uh, low-income people for starting businesses, um, pulled the rug out from under them. Uh, we had a vision that, you know, Microenterprise self-employment was worthy of government support as part of employment programs, as part of economic development programs, but there wasn't the capacity alone to spend a lot, a lot of time uh, designing or advocating for policy at the state or federal level. Uh, as you can imagine, with 100 programs doing their own thing, there was not really a structure for learning and peer exchange. Oh, sure. 
So for all those reasons, we thought it might make sense uh, to form an association. It was also clear, by the way, at that time that the 100 programs were headstrong enough that they weren't going to cooperate in anything they didn't own. Oh, yeah. um, so uh, we, uh, several of us, uh, a lot of folks at CFED, Kathy Keeley, a lot of the uh, leading microenterprise uh, practitioners uh, thought that this was a good idea. We, we called a meeting. We had no money to do this, um, and that was probably a good thing because it meant you could ask people to volunteer. So we held a meeting. We invited 19 leaders of the field together, figuring if they liked it, then kind of everybody would join. Well, 19. 19. Uh, and we invited the 19. Uh, 19 came. Not necessarily the same 19 we invited, right. but it didn't matter. And uh, after some discussion, there was general agreement that this made sense. Uh, and we began, a, uh, on the strength of that, began planning for the first convening uh, and started a very participatory process with several working committees, one working on the uh, articles <laughs> uh, uh, of incorporation and the bylaws, another working on policy, another working on peer exchange and peer support. And then we came together in uh, Berkeley, California in 1991, 150 or so people. Uh, tremendous energy. It is one of the purest exercises in democracy I've ever witnessed. We did everything by consensus. Um, from choosing the name to choosing the mission to to approving the Articles of Incorporation. Uh, there was only one point where it bogged down, which was kind of an arcane issue about, I think, board composition yeah. uh, and elect electoral procedures, and we worked it out. Um, and it was, I mean, this was truly a grass participatory Peace. And for the first several years, and really, I think for most of AEO's history, its real strength has been in the voluntary but deep commitment of its members. Can you can you cast for me and for the listeners uh, a bit of the vision early on, and and maybe how you've seen it develop within the organization and the field from that that first meeting in, in Berkeley in '91. Well, again, I think from the beginning, uh, the vision for the organization was around working on policy, working on peer exchange, uh, eventually trying to get to the issues we're still dealing with about communications. And I don't think we knew enough to think about branding in those days, but <laughs> it's, it's led to that. Uh, I think we always thought, I mean, fundamentally, I think we're all driven by this belief that low-income and unemployed people have much more capacity than opportunity. And, and we believe in that capacity and liberating that capacity uh, rather than kind of writing people off. And I think that vision has remained stable, I would say, for the first 10 years. Um, throughout the 90s, 
there was success after success. The programs grew, foundation support grew, policy victories came one after another. Uh, we had a president, a first lady, and two secretaries of treasury that knew about microenterprise, that believed in it, that could talk about it at least as articulately as we did. Um, and we got support in state houses and in the Capitol from both sides of the aisle. We always pushed it as a bipartisan approach, which combines, you know, what we may consider liberal um, support for the poor with kind of conservative business and financial discipline. Uh, so I would I would say the vision has remained uh, steady. Um, and, but it's all only grown, you know, and the, as the evidence grew, I think our sense of who could be uh, entrepreneurial grew, uh, and certainly our techniques improved, and the performance level improved, and, you know, we started building an evaluation and research infrastructure in field that, uh, you know, helped with it, again, a pol uh, policy vision of both removing the barriers and penalties and providing direct help. So the SBA microloan program was actually born as um, the first AEO meeting, organization meeting took place. I remember in the interstices of that meeting, several of us meeting to talk to SBA about what the legislation might look like. And also at that first meeting, Michael Sheradden came and there was the notion that this was part of the asset building field, which didn't even exist at that time but it was the forebear. Um, I, we would, several years into it, uh, realize that we had, there had been parallel creation of what had existed in the developing world for decades, but we didn't know about it. We learned the term microenterprise. Uh, we were introduced to the notion of, uh, you know, peer group lending. I mean, of course, microenterprise is different in the U.S. and developed economies than it is in the developing world. There's more, I mean, these are more sophisticated economies. The level of investment and income you need to generate to play is higher. Uh, the amount, therefore, of training um, is probably higher, and that means the programs are more costly and harder to sustain. Um, but we, we would learn that as we went along. Now, looking forward, uh, where, uh, where would you say the, the field is going and you would like to see it go? Uh, Just a small question, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, I hope and think it needs to grow and, and will grow. Uh, we're only touching a small fraction of the people in this country that could use this opportunity. So I think the estimates are we touch about 200,000 low-income entrepreneurs a year, but our estimate is that there's at least 10 million who would take advantage of the option. Uh, 4.4 million of the 22 million earned income tax credit recipients last year reported self-employment income. 
2.4 million of the 4.4 reported only self-employment income. So we know that there are millions there already operating, low-income entrepreneurs uh, that probably need help. In many cases, they op, uh, and even that is just the tip of the iceberg because for everyone who files for the EITC, who files a tax return, there are probably many that don't. The earned income earned, tax credit. Earned income tax credit, that's right. So I think we need to grow. Uh, and we need uh, policy improvements to do that. I mean, there is no reason that microenterprise development shouldn't be recognized as entrepreneurship, broadly construed. The entrepreneurship that built this economy uh, that deserves to be seen as an integral part of employment policy, of economic development policy, of social policy. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that the returns here are way in excess of the investment required because you're leveraging individual energy, talent, vision with each loan, with each uh, bit of counseling. I think we need to con continue to see the field use different techniques and uh, more efficiency for greater reach. Uh, one of the ideas that we have been toying around with, which I think has great uh, potential, is to use the earned income tax credit and Schedule C on the uh, tax return as an opportunity, as a teaching moment and an intervention moment. Uh, and we have been uh, developing, and really the we here is led by Gene Severins, um, who started REAP in Nebraska and the Nebraska Microenterprise Partnership, which I think is still the best model of a state support system for microenterprise, uh, which really needs, I mean, there are other state uh, microenterprise associations and other state microenterprise intermediaries, but I think Nebraska is still the model. Nebraska has all of its legislators now vying over uh, seeing whether they can get more microenterprises in their own districts. Uh, that's only a competition that you can develop if you have statewide information systems and a statewide network, so they're filling in microenterprise services statewide. We need to do that in other states. And one of the problems is microenterprise fits in virtually the program of every state agency. But who has the time to go to every agency or to combine that money to leverage it with private sector money and, and particularly to engage local money? Um, so it's, um, I think partly it's the funding mechanism, you know, they got an endorsement of Republican and Democratic governors, yeah. Republican and Democratic legislators. It's a down home issue. Um, and they, you know, information stream, uh, and, and then an organizing capacity in that state, which again, I think is seated in a lot of other states but really needs to uh, – deserves more investment. I, I, um, the 
community development financial institutions fund was sold in Congress and passed in Congress in many ways because of the interest in microenterprise, but very little of the money ever went to microenterprise because most microenterprise programs are more program than they are loan fund. Uh, so unfortunately, in the heyday, we didn't get that to capitalize statewide intermediaries. Um, I would hope that someday we will do that and see the wisdom of doing that. Uh, where I was trying to get to with uh, uh, talking about the tax code is I think there is need and room for a refundable self-employment tax credit. Uh, when a informal business decides to file its first Schedule C yeah. so that it can take so that it can be legal <laughs> um, and above ground and expand, uh-huh. uh, it faces a huge tax barrier. So that the entrepreneur owes not only employer share, uh, not only employee share of FICA. Social Security taxes, but also employer share, usually owes back taxes and penalties on those taxes. So there's a huge barrier to kind of going public with yeah, your business. And uh, so we think that a time-limited uh, tax credit uh, that starts with your first filing of the Schedule C uh, and then uh, – kind of declines over a three- or five-year period would probably bring lots of businesses into the fold, would provide a teaching and outreach opportunity capable of multiplying the uh, reach of the microenterprise sector tenfold, um, and that it would encourage businesses to grow, uh, and uh, that really over a longer period, we think would be revenue neutral because you bring businesses into paying taxes uh, and also to being able to take advantage of the tax preferences in the tax code uh, for businesses. Um, I hope that over time we will change the perception of who the poor are and what they're capable of. We've always known that the story, we've got the best stories going. Uh, I think we need to use those stories to redefine who the poor are. I remember hearing Dr. Eunice um, interviewed on the radio and a skeptical interviewer said, come on, Dr. Eunice, what possibly can anything that goes on in uh, Bangladesh have to do within an economy in a country as different as the United States, and he replied more articulately than I will, uh, that, uh, well, I think it stands for the fact that there, there are among the poor in every country around the world people of tremendous talent and vision and energy, uh, and we just need to tap that. As a final question, Bob, where do you hope AEO goes uh, in the future and, and the, the role that, that we might play in some of uh, that, that vision you were just noting for the field? Well, I hope AEO continues to lead, continues to grow, uh, continues to think big. Uh, 
again, I think the prospects here are unlimited. You know, the the only time that I doubted where this field and movement was going was um, when I doubted the capacity of low-income people. I never should have, um, and every time I have believed in that and exercised that, it has been rewarded tenfold. I think we've all experienced that. We need to teach the country uh, not to expect less. Um, I think that AEO has lots to do in raising the performance of the field, in pushing policy at the state and federal level, organizing state microenterprise associations and intermediaries, uh, seeing the larger picture, uh, making alliances and working with any variety of private and nonprofit groups, uh, other uh, enterprise development interventions of larger businesses, growth businesses, uh, connecting you know, with the economic development mainstream, with banking, uh, I think the challenge here is to create a financial and entrepreneurial system that includes everyone, that offers opportunity for everyone. Uh, so I would kind of just continue keeping on. I think uh, AEO has plans now. You know, we know we think hard about how to brand and capture the field so that people don't just think of this as some kind of boutique, interesting sidelight, but recognizes, recognizes it as the central economic idea of this country. Um, I think we need to look back to our history and recognize that those kind of policies that created significant, widely shared, long-term economic growth and gain were investments in the common genius. It was the Homestead Act. It was universal education. It was the GI Bill where we said, okay, you served our country. We'll finance your college education, your businesses, your homes. And it was in turn those returning GIs that I think sparked um, post-war growth. Now we are faced, as we were in the Great Depression, with kind of... Uh, declining opportunities for uh, work, you know, the middle class to achieve the American dream uh, through employment with uh, wage levels going down with international competition. Uh, you know, we have a third of the population with uh, negligible uh assets, savings or investable assets, which I think is a kind of economic grandfather clause. It means you can't invest in yourself um, and your family to start a business, to buy a home, to go to college. Uh, I think we need, I think the future of this country, the future prosperity of this country is depends on our finding something like you know, the 21st century equivalent of the GI Bill to bring uh, op real opportunity back for the middle class and those who have not been able to achieve middle class status.